sponsored by Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about the history of Munia Abu-Jamal as we continue our Black August programming. Also going to be touching on Anthony Blinken, U.S. Secretary of State's recent visit to Africa, the DRC, to Rwanda, and what that means for the region and for those countries. Also going to be talking about the ongoing need to struggle for abortion rights. And as always at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. Well, remember those ITT Technical Institute commercials that used to come on? They all had some person, very often Black or Latino, but not always, who narrated their harrowing journey from dead-end, low-wage job to capitalist success through education and getting a good-paying job through ITT Tech. So many of those stories were tearjerkers, too. The Latino brothers who were in dead-end jobs, one who had gotten into trouble, quote-unquote, but were finally able to take care of their families and their father because of their ability to get placed in good jobs through ITT Tech. The white Detroit former factory worker who was laid off from his job but was able to support his family even better than he was able to, well, while working at the plant after he got his degree in computer programming, and job placement through ITT Tech. There were plenty of ads like those that ran during the midday or late at night on local television stations across the country, but those commercials probably aren't as memorable as the early 90s ITT Tech ad spots, at least for me, that seemed like they were written by the screenwriters of the movie The Terminator, complete with a terrible and foreboding synthetic soundtrack each title card with white letters on black background warned viewers about the skills they needed to succeed in 1994's high-tech world. The voiceover artist was so urgent, imploring viewers to join ITT Tech so they wouldn't be left behind the fast-moving technological landscape. We were practically inundated with ads from ITT Tech for a little over a decade from the early 90s to around 2016 when the for-profit chain closed. Today, the Biden administration has announced that it will discharge $3.9 billion in student loans held by former students of the school because, quote, the evidence shows that for years, ITT's leaders intentionally misled students about the quality of their programs in order to profit off federal student loan programs with no regard for the hardship this would cause, end quote. The Washington Post reports that state and federal authorities, including the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, found ITT Tech had routinely misled students about the ability to transfer their credits to other schools. They also discovered that the for-profit chain lied to students about employment and earnings prospects after graduation. You mean to tell me that all those emotional, inspiring commercials with all those people improving their miserable deadbeat lives weren't real? That stuff wasn't true? You know what was real? 
the worthlessness of those degrees, as Tasha Burkhalter found out. The Washington Post also reported that Burkhalter enrolled at ITT Tech in 2006 after leaving the Army to pursue a bachelor's degree in criminal justice. Before she graduated, she had to use all of her GI Bill education funds and needed to borrow nearly $100,000 in federal student loans. Employers, however, considered the degree from ITT Tech worthless, making it almost impossible for Burkholder to find work to repay what she owed. She said, whenever I told employers where I attended college, I was shown the door. Burkhalter is a mother of five. She told reporters that she had this cloud of debt over her all this time and that's finally been removed from over her head with the dispatching of the student loan debt for ITT tech students. And this was not uncommon. Maryland Attorney General Brian E. Frosch, a Democrat who helped secure a $330 million settlement against ITT tech over private student loans, said, quote, many ITT tech students were misled, coerced, or victimized by other illegal misconduct. Before closing in 2016, ITT Tech was being investigated by more than a dozen state attorneys general and two federal agencies for alleged fraud, deceptive marketing, or steering students into predatory loans. But it's not just ITT Tech. Oh no, DeVry Institute is also under scrutiny for misleading students about job placement success and Kaplan Career Institute, remember them? They're also in the crosshairs of the Department of Education and the CFPB2. With all of these for-profit institution student loan debt discharges, the Biden administration has now approved nearly $32 billion in loan forgiveness to 1.6 million borrowers. He could absolutely wipe out the rest of the federal student loan debt that currently totals more than $1.6 trillion, owed by about 43 million borrowers. But see, the way all of our student loan debt money is over in Ukraine right now, that's probably not likely to happen. Follow Lukeman Nation on Patreon.com slash Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points. And you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Spike in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movement shaping the world around us. By any means necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on as they say. We're now happy to be joined by Abayomi Azikiwe, the editor of the Pan-African News Wire. Abayomi, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for the invitation. Absolutely. And Abayomi, of course, we are still very much in the midst of Black August, a time where we are supposed to focus and center on the life and struggles and ongoing work of our political prisoners, of which we have far, far too many. And you actually recently published a piece about a man who is perhaps the world's best known uh, political prisoner in Mumia Abu-Jamal in an article entitled Mumia Abu-Jamal Remains the Voice of 
of the voiceless. And, and I think that that's quite an accurate way to uh, describe Mumi as someone who continues to make contributions despite the long years he spent uh, behind prison walls. And so to begin, Abayomi, could you tell us about just who is Mumia Abu-Jamal and how did he come into struggle? Well, Mumia uh, was uh, from Philadelphia, and uh, he grew up there in a working-class uh, African-American household. As a teenager, uh, he got interested in the Black Power movement and uh, participated in uh, several activities, uh, one being the 1967 uh, mass demonstration against the Philadelphia uh, school system, which was attacked uh, by the then uh Police Commissioner uh, Rizzo, and then in 1968, he said they were beaten uh, at a rally for George Wallace, uh, who was the uh, third-party candidate uh, for president in 1968. And then in 1969, uh, he joined and was a co-founder of the uh, Black Panther Party chapter in Philadelphia, which was one of the uh, largest and most active uh, chapters uh, of the party uh, during that particular time period. Then, of course, uh, with the counterintelligence program and the definite uh, efforts uh, by J. Edgar Hoover and others to crush the Black Panther Party and its supporters, he, uh, of course, uh, remained in the organization. And then later, after it went into a freefall, he uh, became an independent uh, journalist and a broadcast journalist. He uh, was operating on several uh, radio stations in Philadelphia. He was a co-founder of the uh, National Association of Black Journalists, uh, Philadelphia chapter, uh, during the 1970s. And he was a uh, defender and supporter of the MOVE organization during the 1970s. Uh, It was being attacked uh, by uh, the Philadelphia police and the Philadelphia uh, administration. Uh, In 1978, there was the siege on uh, the MOVE uh, compound in which a police officer uh, was killed, probably killed uh, by friendly fire. And then, of course, the Move 9, uh, who now are all you know out of prison or who have joined uh, the ancestors. And then in 1979, he did a, a historic interview with uh, Bob Marley, uh, which uh, fortunately I have a copy of. Uh, he interviewed Marley when Marley was in uh, Philadelphia for a concert. Uh, that was the last uh, complete tour of Marley because he fell ill in 1980 and, of course, uh, passed away in uh, May of 1981. But Mumia was, uh, of course, uh, involved in a confrontation uh, with the Philadelphia police in December of 1981. A police officer, uh, Daniel Faulkner, was killed. Uh, Mumia has maintained his innocence uh, in regard to the killing of uh uh, Officer Faulkner. Uh, in 1982, he was convicted of murder. And uh, in 1983, he was uh, sentenced to the death penalty. And he remained on death row uh, for uh, many years, up until uh, 2011. And he was his sentence was switched from a uh, death sentence uh, to life in prison without parole. Yet, people are still fighting uh, for his release uh, from prison. And he has a weekly uh, uh, radio broadcast through presentradio.org that discusses a myriad of issues, uh, historical issues, issues involving other political prisoners, the prison industrial complex, 
uh, race relations, uh, political economy. So he remains a, a leading figure uh, in the uh, black liberation struggle in the United States. Yeah, and, you know, there is a, a history of Philadelphia itself being, uh, you know, location of a resistance among black people that I, I wasn't aware of until I learned more about Mumia Abu-Jamal. And I didn't know about an organization actually called RAM, which was the predecessor to the Black Panther Party. And I'm wondering if you can give us a little bit of insight into what RAM or the Revolutionary Action Movement was, what Mumia's involvement in that organization was, and how that led him to the Black Panther Party. Well, uh, the Revolutionary Action Movement uh, was started around 1952 uh, by uh, Max Stanford and also uh, Don Freeman, who was from Cleveland, Max Stanford from uh, Philadelphia. And uh, they were a revolutionary organization uh, that advocated uh, armed resistance. They were committed uh, to, to the preparation of some type of uh, revolutionary upheaval in the United States against the uh, capitalist and racist system uh, in the country. And then uh, they came under uh, fierce attack uh, by the FBI and local police authorities in 1967. Uh, right before the summer, they were arrested. Seventeen of them were arrested and charged uh, with a myriad of um, trumped-up uh, allegations about assassinating uh, mainstream or moderate uh, black leaders at the time, including people like Roy Wilkins and Whitney Young, which was a total fabrication. But I, the whole objective was to get them off the streets uh, prior to the summer of 1967, which uh, became, as James Foreman described, uh, the high tide of uh, black resistance. So, uh, yes, but I'm not aware that Mumia was involved with RAM. Uh, perhaps he was, but uh, uh, the organization was uh, made a powerful contribution uh, to the struggle of African-Americans uh, during the 1960s. Definitely. And uh, when we have a look at how Mumia sort of continues his uh, uh, his broadcast and his uh, journalism even to this day while he remains in incarcerated. I feel like it tells us a lot about what our political prisoners still have to offer us. And I mean, I'm also thinking of someone like uh, Dr. Matulu Shakur, who is really quite ill and having just turned 72 years old and has been uh, denied parole uh, uh, constantly, even most recently, where a basically said that um, he was denying him parole because he wasn't sufficiently close enough to death. And so we've even seen uh, a renewed push uh, to free uh, uh, Dr. Shakur. And even I think if we look at um, the, the the recent years and how we've seen a number of uh, political prisoners released, I'm thinking of people like uh, Sundiata Akoli, who was released, I believe, earlier this year, Albert Woodfox, who was released a few years ago and recently passed away as well. And we we had the opportunity to have him on the show a couple times. And so when we have a look at 
a, a time, a commemorative period like Black August in a year like 2022 with a, a white supremacy and racist police terror and the contradictions of the capitalist system still uh, uh, raging. And, and I mean, I think one could argue even intensified given the state of the capitalist system at this point. I mean, how do you see it as important, Abayomi, for us to continue to fight to uh, uh, free our political prisoners? And what do you think that could continue to teach us in this moment? Well, it reminds us of the history of African people in the United States, that uh, we were brought here as enslaved persons. Uh, We were tortured, we were exploited, and we were repressed. And uh, every effort to try to uh, rebel against that oppression, uh, whether it was violent or nonviolent, was met uh, with fierce, a very fierce violence on the part of the state and uh, the ruling class in the United States. So Black August reminds us uh, of that history. Uh, Mumia, several years ago, in a commentary, pointed out all these events that occurred in August. Uh, For example, the arrival in 1619 of 20 Africans uh, from Angola to the British uh, colony of Virginia, uh, which later became part of the United States. And then he reminds us about uh, Nat Turner's rebellion, which also occurred in August of 1831, the Haitian Revolution, uh, which began in August of 1791. Then you could move forward uh, to the Watts Rebellion of 1965, which really was a turning point in African-American as well as uh, overall U.S. history uh, in regard to uh, mass uh, resistance uh, to racism and economic exploitation. The uh, assassination of uh, Jonathan Jackson in uh, 1970 in an attempt to liberate his brother, George Jackson, and other political prisoners. And then, of course, the killing of George Jackson the following year on August, uh, I believe, 21st of 1971 uh, in uh, San Quentin uh, during what the authorities said was an attempt uh, to escape uh, from prison. So this month, has been a month of resistance uh, historically, and I think uh, the campaign to win compassionate release for Dr. Matulu Shakur, we've been covering it here in the city of Detroit. It's a very vibrant and very serious effort that's going on right now, and uh, people have reached out uh, to uh, elected officials, they've reached out to religious leaders, and they've reached out even to the White House to try to get some movement uh, on this on this issue. Um, all of these uh, political prisoners, whether it's uh, Matulu Shakur, uh, whether it is uh, people such as Leonard Peltier, uh, they were arrested during a time period of fierce repression by the U.S. government. And of course, they were resisting this exploitation and oppression. And so therefore, uh, many people feel very strongly they should be given a general amnesty or released with time served. Uh, others who have been released, uh, you mentioned Sundiata Akola. Uh, he's 85 years old. He had been in prison since 1973. He was captured alongside uh, Sada Shakur. And, uh, of course, uh, there were others like Jalil Mutakin, uh, who was released uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, he had spent many, many years in prison since he was about 19 years old. So all of these people uh, have come out of prison, uh, and you mentioned Albert Woodfox. They have come out and may continue to make a contribution uh, to the struggle uh, for freedom 
and self-determination. So I think that uh, Dr. Matulu Shakur uh, should be released on a compassionate basis uh, because there's no, in fact, even his conviction, uh, there was no DNA or physical evidence uh, linking him to any of the crimes which he was committed, uh, which he was convicted for. And uh, the, the information that the FBI received were from informants uh, who uh, had been uh, taken into custody uh, and had either uh, had had either been infiltrators of the Black Liberation Army or people who decided that you know they were facing years in prison, possible life in prison, and decide uh, to give information to the FBI, uh, which led uh, to the conviction of several people, uh, people like uh, Sekou Odenga and uh, many others, Sunni uh, Bilal Ali. So, uh, yes, it, it's been a, a, a decades-long struggle uh, for the release of political prisoners. We have the National Jericho Movement, which started around 1998, and um it continues until today, advocating for a general amnesty for political prisoners. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Abayomi, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about tensions between Rwanda and the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Kambale Musavuli, an activist, writer, and analyst with the Center for Research on the Congo, Kinshasa. Kambale, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And Kambale, here recently, U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken took a trip to Rwanda and met with President Paul Kagame in the country's capital city, Kigali, later on uh, holding a press conference with his uh, uh, counterpart there in Rwanda as well. And, you know, uh, and I'm speaking specifically of Rwandan Foreign Minister uh, Vincent Biruta. And uh, during during that press conference, he talked about his conversation with Kagame, sort of uh, focusing in part on human rights issues uh, within the country. I think specifically uh, the case of Rwandan citizen and U.S. permanent resident Paul Rusa Bagina, uh, probably best known uh, from the movie Hotel Rwanda. Um, he also said that uh, he spoke with Kagame about, quote, credible reports of uh, Rwanda's government supporting a rebel group M23 and and uh, sending Rwandan forces into the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Rwanda's neighboring country, saying at the press conference, quote, my message to both President Shikedi, uh, who is the president of the DRC, and President Kagame has been the same. 
any support or cooperation with any armed group in eastern DRC endangers local communities and regional stability. And every country in the region must respect the territorial integrity of the others. Now, I definitely want to get into uh, uh, sort of not only what Blinken may have been after here, but his trip to Africa in general. But before we even get to that, Kambale, could you sort of contextualize the tension between Rwanda and the DRC? Where does this come from and how does it impact what happens in those countries? It's important to have a historical look at the conflict in DRC. Uh, the people of the Congo in, and the people of the region do not have any problem. But there is a fundamental issue that exists where two of U.S. allies, Rwanda and Uganda, invaded the Congo in 1996, and they reinvaded the Congo in 1998, and up until that time to present, they continue to support rebel proxy militia. So it's beyond tension. We are talking about, uh, due to the emphasis of DRC, that over 6 million Congolese have died. Um, so that's the context. So why is Rwanda, why are uh, no, Rwanda and Uganda invaded the Congo, continue to destabilize? As I mentioned, they are U.S. allies on the war on terror. Uh, they do U.S. bidding on the African continent around the world. You have uh, Ugandan soldiers in Iraq, in Afghanistan. You have Rwandan soldiers in, uh, they were at the time in Mali. Um, they've been to Central African Republic. They've even been to Haiti um, uh, as part of the UN mission, but mainly serving U.S. interests. Uh, secondly, uh, they are also the eyes of the United States for actions they want to take on the continent. Some may remember that the toppling of Gaddafi could not have taken place if the Entebbe airport in uh, Uganda was not used. So the U.S. military uh, used, uh, with their NATO partners, the Ugandan airport to launch attack on Qaddafi of Libya. Something with uh, Rwanda, they have been very good at providing U.S. intelligence around African leaders and providing intelligence to other uh, nations that are needing that. And the last which is the most important thing is the invasions in DRC is directly connected to the exploitation of mineral resources in DRC. What are we talking about? The cobalt, the coltan, a mineral used in your cell phone, your laptop, and many electronic devices. So Congo is endowed with so much mineral wealth that since its Model Day funding in 1985, these resources has been they have been used for the world and in this current time, as it's being used for the world, Congolese are dying. That's the uh, proper um, historical context of why there is a continuous tension. But now the the situation with uh, the Secretary of State is quite baffling to me. Why am I saying that? The U.S. Secretary of State travel to Africa. He goes to South Africa, he travels to Kinshasa, and then travels to Kigali, Rwanda. In his visit, he clearly hints that the United States, and him as the Secretary of State, he has credible evidence that Rwanda is supporting rebels in the DRC. While not in Kigali, he presents the situation similarly to uh, U.S. position ver uh, when you look at the situation with Israel and Palestine, where Israel can bomb Gaza, and the U.S. will say that all sides have to uh, 
restrain from violence. It's the same situation with the DRC, where the Secretary of State says, I have credible evidence that Rwanda is supporting rebel groups, but Congo and Rwanda should get along. But why is that problematic? It's problematic in the context of the United States because the Congolese do not need the goodwill of the United States. We don't need the United States government to uh, feel sorry for us and so on. What we ask for the the American government to do is to enforce its own law. What does that mean? There is a law in the United States called Public Law 109456. It's a law that was signed into law by George Bush in 2006. It was actually written. It was actually written by Barack Obama when he was a senator. He wrote over 100 bills. Of only one of them actually became law. That law is called the Democratic Republic of Congo Relief, Security, Democracy Act of 2006. What does this law say? It clearly says in Section 105 that the U.S. Secretary of State has the power to revolve aid to nations destabilizing the Congo if this uh, Secretary of State has evidence that the foreign country is doing so. Now, we hear him in a press conference where he says that there is credible evidence, which means that he has actually information that Rwanda is destabilizing the Congo. But instead of enforcing the law, by withholding military assistance to Rwanda, he says that Congo and Rwanda should get along. So that's, the, that's been the biggest frustration of Congolese on the ground, that the U.S. continue to support the violence in the Congo by hoping that people in the world will not even know that this law exists, that they actually have to enforce it, and by not enforcing it, they're actually breaking the law. You know, part of Blinken's statements uh that he made in regard to uh, this ongoing conflict was that he said that my message to both the DRC President uh, Chisikedi and President Kagame has been the same. Any support or cooperation with any armed group in Eastern DRC endangers local communities and regional stability. And every country in the region must respect the territorial integrity of the others. And when, when he was talking about uh, you know, any armed group. He was talking specifically about uh, this group M23. Uh, and that's what the credible reports are about relating to R- Rwanda's alleged support of this group M23. I mean, who are they? Why are they the focus of, uh, you know, Blinken's uh, visit and his comments? And what relation do they have to the previous conflicts uh, in Rwanda between the Tutsis and the Hutsis uh, and the Hutus and Paul Kagame in particular? The M23 uh, is just the name of the same rebel group that came in DRC in 1996. What the rebels in DRC have have realized that all you have to do is change your name and everyone will forget who you are. A good example, the commander, the chief commander of the M23, Sutani Makenga, was also a commander of the AFDN rebel group in 1996. So what's the historical line? In 1996, they were called AFDL. 
in the second invasion of Rwanda, they were called RCD. In the third uh, uh, attack of the same rebel group, around, uh, I believe, around 2004 and five, they were called CNDP. Now, in 2012, they became M23. As you and I are not talking about them right now, they're not called M23. They're calling themselves now ARC, Revolutionary Army of the Congo. So soon, in the press, they'll be called ARC. But who are they? They are random back, random arm. Some of them actually fought uh, with Paul Kagame in Uganda in the late 80s. They fought with Paul Kagame around that during the Rwandan genocide, and they also came in in the invasions of the URC in 1996. I call them rebels without borders. They do not have allegiance to uh, a national boundary. Uh, they are militia who have operated in the Great Lakes region from Uganda to Rwanda and to the URC, and they roll in the Congo has been to serve U.S. interests. And I'm really emphasizing that because when we get into the super slope about what are these Rwandans, uh, which ethnicity they are from, but they don't make the weapons. Rwanda does not have a weapon factory. We know uh, Rwandan President Paul Kagame was trained at Fort Leavenworth in the United States. So who are the people who are arming them and why are they arming them? As long as there is chaos in DRC, Congo's mineral resources will continue to be pilfered. Of course, for those who have uh, watched the movie Hotel Rwanda and follow Rwanda closely, know that in 1994, there was a Rwandan genocide where most of the people that were Tutsis, over uh, some estimate 500 to a million, uh, depending on uh, who you read, but it's presented as Hutu versus Tutsis. People do not realize that currently in Rwanda, the Tutsi are in power. That they want control. So after the 1994 genocide, Paul Kagame, who was of Tutsi ethnicity, took control of Rwanda. Does he represent the Tutsi uh, clan? Of course, he does not. But what we clearly see is a class struggle where a minority have taken control of a country and causing chaos around uh, the region without any allegiance to the ethnicity. Yeah, and what you're describing there, Kambale, then makes me question even further uh, Blinken's uh, recent pronouncements here in terms of, I mean, you know, basically making it seem like he wants peace between Rwanda and DRC. Meanwhile, uh, as you were saying, uh, uh, Washington actually has everything to gain from uh, uh, these these issues that you were describing that stem from this genocide that took place in the Congo uh, precisely over um, these uh, this material exploitation. And so, I mean, how do you see this as from a, a, a geopolitical standpoint? How do you see this as factoring into the U.S. government's seeming overall uh, designs and strategy on the African continent in this moment where they seem to be using uh, the continent as almost a kind of battlefield for its new Cold War against other governments like Russia and China and things like this? I mean, it seems as though uh, Washington is uh, doing everything it can to sort of retain its stranglehold 
over the continent in uh, a number of ways in trying to keep uh, uh, other uh, ascendant powers out. Meanwhile, uh, uh, the people on the ground in these countries uh, uh, continue to suffer uh, seemingly with no real relief in sight. Absolutely. And I love the question you asked, because people will assume that the reason why Blinken is in Africa, or specifically uh, the reason why he went to DRC and Rwanda, is around the M23 rebellion. No, not at all. The, the only reason Blinken is in Africa, and what people forget that he was in Africa at the same time as uh, U.S. Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield was in Accra in, in Ghana. So both of them, the two top U.S. diplomats, were traveling across Africa at the same time. Why? To counter, counter China and Russia's influence on the African continent. Why the Congo? When the uprising of the M23 started in the DRC, evidence were presented at the Security Council. Not Congolese providing evidence, but a U.N. group of experts presenting evidence, drone evidence, video um, evidence that there is support of Rwanda to uh, the Rwanda military to the M23 in DRC. There was no action on the part of the United States. Guess who responded to Congo's call? Russia. So Congo deploys diplomats to Russia. Uh, we had uh, um, a Russian diplomat travel to Kinshasa, the Russian embassy meeting officially with the Congolese government and offering their support to bring an end to the rebellion. And that took place in July. In the beginning of July, a few weeks later, we see the U.S. Secretary of State flying in. So that's on the Russian aspect, that the Russia has provided, as a pledge to provide support to the Congolese government to bring an end to the rebellion, because let's not forget it, the U.N. helicopter that was brought down earlier this year, had uh, a Russian pilot in it. So they have lost their citizen also in the war in the Congo, and they say they're going to provide support to the DRC to bring an end. The second one that most people are now realizing is that China has been a strong partner to the DRC, not arming the Congolese, but building infrastructure. They're building roads. They're building hydroelectric dams. Um, and they're also mining resources. So the mining of the resources in exchange of building infrastructure. These are real concrete programs. And just this month, uh, China has just opened in DRC a water treatment plant. So the Congolese people are seeing clearly the tangible project when the U.S. cannot even show us one road they build in DRC. So Congolese directly are seeing Russia and China as tangible partner for peace and development in our country. And you can see that, not because I say so, if you watch many of the protests that took place in the Congo uh, during the uprising on the M23, you will see Congolese holding signs saying, Putin, uh, Putin come uh, help the DRC. So the Congolese people themselves have seen the contradiction of the Western powers in not dealing with the situation in the Congo while supporting those who are destabilizing the DRC, and they are looking to Russia and China as a concrete partner. So Blinken showing up in the Congo 
and um, meeting with Chisekedi in Kinshasa is to make sure that Congo continue to stay at the side of the United States, just as they uh, did in the 60s by assassinating uh, Patrice Lumumba and make, making sure that Mobutu takes power to stay at the side of the uh, the United States. But I don't think at this time it's going to work because the Congolese are very clear about what is happening. They know we need peace. They know we need justice. And they're clearly seeing that neither justice and peace will come with the support of the United States. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Kambale, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the ongoing struggle for abortion rights, privacy, and bodily autonomy. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Monka Donway, who studied geography at Illinois State University and has spent most of her career in electoral politics, and Chai Mua, who holds a BS degree in human services management and a family development specialist certification from the National Resource Center for Family Center Practice at the University of Iowa. Monka, Chai, thank you both so much for joining us. Thanks for having us, Sean and Jackie. Yeah, definitely. Really glad that you could join us because this conversation uh, about the struggle for bodily autonomy, justice in the struggle for bodily autonomy, is of course ongoing. And it's highlighted by a piece that uh, you all, all guest wrote uh, in Tone magazine called Why Freedom Incorporated Will Keep Fighting for Abortion Rights. And you point out in this piece that in the struggle for justice, bodily autonomy and the right to privacy are key. So I'm wondering, Monker, if you could give us insight into the part of this issue of struggling for abortion rights that maybe we we don't quite understand that I think you highlighted well, and that's the, the privacy piece. This is not just a, a struggle for the right to abortion, but it's also a struggle to maintain privacy rights and bodily autonomy for all people. Right. So, you know, our position on this whole thing has been, uh, yes, abortion defense work is worthy work, and it's central. Uh, it should be central to our work of Black liberation and Southeast Asian liberation and, and collective liberation, really. And our position is that, you know, trying to fight to defend Roe is, is good, um, and Roe was the floor, right? It's like the very least thing that we could have had in place to still be a civilized society, but we're not interested in fighting for the least that we can do because we see, as you as you said, um, what's possible or in the violence that's possible, um, in the limiting of people's full lives and, and autonomy that's that's possible 
when we don't have privacy or, or bodily autonomy. And it's really illustrated. I mean, we don't have far to look at our queer, trans, and intersex and gender nonconforming siblings um, who don't have that right um, and, and who are faced with violence in their homes and in the streets, in the public sphere and the private sphere. Um, and so we talk about different instances in which we should all care about the Dobbs decision, not only because of access to abortion, but because our own freedom and, and privacy is at stake as well. Yeah, Chai, and in the piece, you all point out that it wasn't the right to abortion that gave rise to the right to privacy. It was actually the opposite. Um, so can you explain how that that transformation happened, how the right to privacy paved the way to the federal legislation for abortion and how we can use that understanding to build on protecting uh, that right to privacy, especially as Amanka just uh, pointed out, in the area of policing queer bodies uh, in particular? Um, you know, I think like uh, we were saying, um, the right to privacy really established uh, women being, uh, uh, women, queer folks, and uh, folks really having like control over their bodies and uh, not having to report to anyone about uh, when, say for instance, when uh, they had the period, when they're missing the period, when, when your body changes. And this all really, uh, I think, uh, contributes to um, that access to abortion. Right. Yeah. So the, when we talk about the rights of privacy actually paving the way for the right to bodily autonomy, um, it was actually an early um, an early Supreme Court case before Roe v. Wade, um, Griswold v. Connecticut, um, that actually said that um, married couples in the privacy of their marriage and of their home are able to use contraceptives. And, you know, we know that we live in a patriarchal society, so it's interesting that that through the protection of marriage, right, of the heteropatriarchal institution, um, we were able to then see a precedent for in the ruling of Roe v. Wade be, be referenced um, that what's what's private um, between um, a married couple um, should stay private, right? And and through that, um, like Chai is saying, and, and we're being historically correct as well to say. Uh, women, mainly white women and married white women, having this access to abortion through that, right, through wanting to protect the institution of marriage. Um, and so that that's, lends a lot to the reason why Roe v. Wade is the floor, and, and you can have access legally to abortion. Um, but, you know, queer, trans, and intersex folks, um, black girls, um, black women, poor folks didn't really have the right to it like that, you know, like didn't really weren't able to walk in without being judged, without being discriminated against, without having society tell them that they're not worth the thing uh, for getting an abortion. And so uh, what we're saying is we have to go beyond that uh, in, in movement right now. This is an opportunity for us to be saying something that moves our people um, beyond uh, trying to defend um, a, a Supreme Court decision that really didn't go far enough in the first place. And so that that's what this really is about. It's about the fact that, uh, you know, they're eroding um, bodily autonomy and we can't go back. We can't go back to a time um, where our bodies were not our own. That That's what made chattel enslavement work in this country. Someone else being able to tell black women, 
when you can have children and when you can't and what we're going to do with the children. And so we don't want to go back there. That has nothing. There's nothing good for us back there. Right. So this is everybody's fight. This is black men's fight, black women's fight, um, our queer trans and intersex folks. Um, this is this is everyone's fight because it's, it's Roe v. Wade today. But as Justice Clarence Thomas made clear, it's, it's the right to same sex marriage tomorrow. Um, it's uh, it's uh, interracial marriage tomorrow and a host of other things um, in our as we see our current political landscape shifting far to the right. Um, and it's a fascist and extremist um, um, leanings right now. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's a good point, Mark, when you talk about how some of these other uh, fundamental rights are under attack following the overturning of ways, something that um, <clears throat> I think a lot of people saw coming. And as you saw, was definitely followed up on by these reactionary judges like Clarence Thomas. But I wanted to actually take a quick state back, if we could, because, I mean, you all were, were writing about uh, Freedom, Inc. And uh, I wanted to uh, sort of get some understanding around just what that organization is and the work that it does. So, so Chai, if you could tell us some about, you know, Freedom Inc., uh, the work that that uh, organization does and, you know, uh, how it sort of uh, operates in a moment like this where uh, people's fundamental rights are clearly under assault. Yeah, well, you know, Freedom Inc., we are a uh, um, black Southeast Asian organization, a black queer uh, Southeast Asian and black organization. And, you know, we um, work uh, towards ending gender-based violence, uh, interpersonal and state violence. Um, and we do this not just by providing the direct services that we do for victims and survivors, but also uh, by coupling direct service with organizing. And so you'll see in times like this, we'll have our, commu- our community power team out um, looking uh, looking at legislations, but then also uh, we also believe like direct action and uh, bringing attention to issues like this um, and getting our folks um, mobilized um, to respond um, is a very important. We continue to do that to organizations. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, as we are going forward in this struggle and you're seeing the political landscape, you know, Chai, what do you see as the way we should be organizing using the information we have, but also using like the the history of what got us here, got us here. And that's particularly the history of colonialism and the relationship that colonialism, settler colonialism, in particular had with policing bodies and stealing land. Where do we go in our organizing going forward with that history uh, in mind, Chai? Yeah, you know, I think like the right to privacy is very important for us, especially like as um, colonialized people. And, you know, I think uh, making sure that we have the right to body autonomy is uh, even more uh, fundamental at this moment. And you know, if you have the right to bodily autonomy, you have the right to privacy, right? Um, and we have, uh, but, you know, we've seen that having the right to privacy does not necessarily mean that we have the right to bodily autonomy. Um, and I think, like, the other part is really, like, understanding um, the intersectionalities and knowing uh, why it's important, you know, especially, like, for colonized folks, um, who may be queer or black or Southeast Asian. 
Yeah, totally. And within that context, Maka, I mean, it's just so clear, I think, that uh, we're still grappling with the consequences of this colonial history and how disruptive it was um, to the, uh, uh, you know, freedom, if you will, to use a word. I mean, the way that people were able to have uh, that kind of agency and autonomy over their own selves, their families and communities and things like that, because the destruction of those institutions and the kind of reorganizing and redefining of those concepts were uh, instrumental in the development of, you know, what we consider this uh, white supremacist uh, uh, capitalist world order that we live under right now. So from your perspective, I mean, how is it that, you know, uh, uh, how is it that you see that we're still sort of um, trying to uh, grapple with that history? And how important is it to sort of understand that history as we continue to uh, engage in this struggle? Yeah, I mean, you're so right, uh, Sean, to to evoke the histories around colonization. So this empire that we're living under and through and in right now, the U.S. empire, would not be possible without stripping our rights um, over um, our, our bodies, over our labor, um, over our rights to how we form our families um, and, and how we... Um, and the values that we instill in them, right? Um, so when when black folks were stolen from Africa, and even uh, those who were left on the continent um, were terrorized um, in order to mine our resources and everything like that, um, stripping bodily autonomy was key. If you are a, a black uh, person, uh, the fact that this society has decided that you don't have body autonomy means that you are in effect a beast, right? That's in now in public domain. And now it's, it's the police officer's right to kill you when you are threatening someone who has full citizenship in the eyes of this empire, right? Like a white woman or, or a white person, or really even them, right? Um, and, and so that is so key to it. That process of stripping our humanity and our right to choose what's best for us um, is so is so key to that to the project of colonial uh, colonization, and it's continuing to this day. Who's to say um, that they will stop at uh, when uh, if, when you can have children or when you can't? We know what it was like organizing and living through uh, this country and this this regime. I'll say um, pre Wade. We know Fannie Lou Hamer uh, spoke about. Um, you know, the, the, the Mississippi, uh, what is it, Append, uh, appendix removal or whatever, when they were, like, forcibly uh, uh, sterilizing black women without their knowledge, it's not just about uh, when, to, when to have the baby or the sanctity of life. It's about telling us when we can and when we can't uh, in, in service of their goals, right? Um, and that's what it's always been about. And that, that's really why we should all, especially as black folks, um, should be invested in uh, defending Roe v. Wade or the Wade decision, but also going beyond that, right? Um, and, and I think, you know, child, we're a black and Southeast Asian organization because of the link of that colonial history. Uh, Southeast Asian people had a whole secret war um, which we call, which is commonly known as the Vietnam War, um, but we call it the American Occupation or the Secret War, where bombs were being dropped on their people, and, and they were being tricked into fighting for the U.S. government, and the U.S. government pretty much left them high and dry. 
um, to, to be uh, killed, right, um, after the Vietnam War. Um, and so we know that we have been made Black and we have been made Southeast Asian, and those are political identities. And, and the one thing that's linking all that or that made those projects of colonization successful was stripping our bodily autonomy. Yeah. And I just want to add in there, like stripping our bodily autonomy and then like also um, identifying who gets to um, police us and who gets to control us. Right. And we see that within like Southeast Asian women, like that historically from colonialism has named the men head of household in our communities and they get to choose our partners to when we have kids, to how we have sex, to when we even die. And even after uh, Hmong women's death, like how their bodies are laid to uh, rest and where their spirits roam after that. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I do want to ask, because the question is asked in the piece, you know, what are we prepared to do in defense of bodily autonomy? So what is Freedom Inc. prepared to do in defense of bodily autonomy? We're going to continue um, to be out in the community talking to our folks about this. We'll continue to do direct action um, and make sure that we're holding the state accountable to what our folks want and need. If that means we're shutting down the streets like we did during the uprising or we are packing out uh, council meetings or if we're writing mass letters and getting thousands of signatures um, to our state's leadership, um, if we are pushing federally as well um, around what is it that our elected officials are willing to do in order to to defend and restore these rights and take them either f- even further, but also building alternatives within our communities um, so that we can get contraceptives, so that we can get folks to where they need to be and, and get them the money and the resources that they need to do to go and get an abortion, but also... Um, since this is about bodily autonomy, that's also about getting hormone therapy for our trans siblings. That's also about getting name change um, clinic money. That's also about um, getting gender affirming clothing. Um, that's, this is linked. This is the, the core of our work in getting to gender justice. And we'll continue to do all of those things. Absolutely. Well, we thank you both so much for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Thursday, August 18th, 2022. And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to Give us a call if by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you, but that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you will, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us. 
That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades, that's y'all, to reach out and touch us at By Any Means Necessary here in Washington, D.C. You can do that at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to our shows at sputniknews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in By Any Means Necessary. You can also hear us on sputnik.mail. That's M-A-V-E dot digital. And you can listen live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern time each weekday. And we're streaming for your viewing pleasure on Rumble right now. That's rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do when we're very happy to be joined for the hour today by Kamal Franklin, an organizer with Community Movement Builders in Atlanta and co-founder of Black Power Media. Kamal, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. And we really appreciate you, Kamal. And I wanted to start off today uh, talking about some police abuse issues that have been happening, I think, on several fronts in the city of Atlanta. I mean, most recently this week, there was a 90 second clip that was posted to social media that showed uh, portions of an interaction between um, an Atlanta police officer and two people uh, uh, that reportedly uh, took place in the Shady Valley Park uh, after hours. Uh, The officer has been identified as uh, Bill Brooks. And I believe at one point in the video, uh, Brooks actually tripped the woman to the pavement and uh, pointed his stun gun uh, at her head. And uh, according to a statement from the APD, um, they're basically saying that Brooks's use of force uh, was not excessive, saying, quote, upon learning of the incident, members of APD's command staff immediately began reviewing the incident to determine the facts surrounding the case. It has become immediately clear there is more of this story than the short social media video show and the decision has been made to release the body worn camera footage from the arresting officer and reportedly Brooks uh, has not been disciplined or placed on administrative leave as a result of this incident. So come on, help us understand uh, just what's happening here and uh, how it plays into the broader picture of policing inside Atlanta. Yeah, I thought this was an important incident uh, because of the larger context that you just talked about, that there's um, more going on in terms of Atlanta policing, and I'm sure we're going to get to it soon uh, about the uh, the reopening uh, of the of the of the Atlanta jail with at least to the Fulton County uh, Sheriff's Department that's going to increase to 700 beds, um, and that the ongoing battle around Cop City, the police training center, which is still on track to be built, but they're still meeting a whole bunch of resistance. I, but I just thought something like this this particular incident where. Basically, a, um, uh, a woman and a man were in a park, apparently after hours, so after whatever regulation says that the park is closed, which th- there's no indication whatsoever whether or not those folks knew it or not. There was no indication that they were committing any other supposed or alleged crime by being in the park, i.e., 
drinking, smoking, planning robberies, terrorist action, whatever crazy thing that you think they could be doing in a park. They were actually just talking. Um, and the officer rolled up on them. And instead of, if again, if the case is that they were in the park after the official close of the park, he could have just easily have said to them, look, the park is closed. Could you please just take the conversation someplace else? Instead, what this officer decided to do was to do what officers in Atlanta and across the country are trained to do, which is to harass, uh, to take control of the situation, to use uh, abusive language to heighten the situation. And in this particular case, the officer decided that he was going to take the opportunity to issue tickets or summonses uh, to the two people, again, as opposed to just saying, hey, you guys, the park is closed. Could you please just go someplace else? Um, we're just trying to clear the area for whatever reason there is. Um, but instead of that, he immediately started uh, uh, issuing a ticket, taking, uh, asking for ID. Uh, the woman in this particular incident asked the officer for their um, uh, badge and ID uh, badge and their name, which the officer did give. Um, and then a woman asked whether or not she would be, um, whether or not uh, she could, she had to sign a ticket. And she asked several times, and apparently the officer got disgusted by the mere fact that she would ask to sign a ticket and decided that now it was time to place her under arrest. And so the last thing I wanted to say about this incident is that there is nothing whatsoever that uh, should cause someone to be placed under arrest because they refused to or did not sign a ticket. There's nothing additive about signing a ticket, particularly in this modern world where they've just had access to the person's uh, uh, tag, line, tag numbers in terms of their license plates, uh, their, their ID in terms of their, their photo ID or their driver's license. All of that stuff has been established and gotten. There's nothing that really signing a ticket adds, and it should not ever be a reason for placing someone to arrest. And so the grand sum of this is that this was a harassment which escalated because of the police's abuse of authority and attempts to show that they were in control of the situation. And that's what's going to happen when they're opening up this new jail. Uh, they are going to certainly find people to stuff in this new jail. And so the police are or reopening this old jail, I should say. So the police are taking this opportunity. We should look at this as the police and the way they act and interact with the larger community as what's going to happen. They're going to fill up this jail with people for citations, uh, uh, drinking citations and park citations, homelessness, drug use, all the things that we don't need people arrested or corralled for is what repurposing a jail is going to be used in Atlanta for. Yeah. And, you know, about this jail, I could have sworn and correct me if I'm wrong, Kamal, that there was a big push and there was a promise by some politicians that this jail would actually be closed. But now that's not happening. And I mean, I do think we need to talk about like the, the wider implications for policing in Atlanta what that means, because it seems to me that the police are pushing back on all of the efforts uh, to constrain them, to rein them in uh, and to keep them from, you know, opening up this cop city and, and other things that have been going on, the grassroots organizing that's been going on in Atlanta. So, I mean, what what is it about this jail that seems to me like a complete about face uh, that I thought I heard about, you know, what some politicians said they were going to do regarding this jail? 
You're completely correct. Not only did the former mayor, Keisha Lance Bottoms, make promise after promise that this jail would be repurposed. There are approximately uh, seven to ten inmates uh, or detainees in the jail, uh, about 10 to 12 guards. The jail has not been in use for three to four years, if not even longer. Uh, and so there's no reason whatsoever why the promise that was made to repurpose this jail into a center that can help people once they get out of jail, that could be a place for uh, folks to get services that they need and other things that the community was saying is, is what we really need to make sure that we have a better sense of what public safety should be like. Um, those promises were broken. In fact, the current mayor of the city, uh, Andre Dickens, when he was a city council person, put forth uh, legislation and ordinance to, again, repurpose slash close the jail. And so now that this person has become mayor, they've decided to take a 180 stance, and now they've signed a four-year lease with the DeKalb County Sheriff's Department to keep this jail open and expand it to, again, a minimum of 700 beds. And part of the lease agreement says that it can go as high as approximately 1,300 beds, which is full capacity. So there is, and, they've, and the city of Atlanta is using the language that they plan to still close the jail, or this is a step towards closing. It's the most Orwellian language that you can come up with. So in order to close a jail, which is almost already done, done with and not used, you're going to open it up to more beds, and that's your way of saying that you're closing, you're closing the jail. So this is obviously part of that larger narrative that started over a year ago in response to the George Floyd uprising, to the Breonna Taylor uprising, to the Rashad Brook uprisings, in which people were in mass out in the street protesting police tactics, behavior, uh, modus operandi, the assassination of people in our community, and the police were on their heels. But the police, along with the political establishment and their good friends in mainstream slash corporate media, were there to try to snatch back the narrative. And what we've had over the last eight to nine months is a high crime narrative, which has been put out there over and over again, As even as we see that so-called crime is still at a historic low point in this country, that this alternative narrative that coming out of the pandemic, that we are awash in crime and criminal behavior, is something now that they have used as a scare tactic and a reason and rationale for why they're going to keep this jail open. And again, part of their reason and rationale for why they want to build Cop City, again, an institution that wouldn't be built for at least another three or four years, and so has nothing to do with any present situation or claim about crime, but instead they are still using that narrative, pushing that narrative, and that's what's getting out to the public, um, and that's what's being used to scare the public, while the, 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 the mayor's office and their corporate friends continue to set up a system where it's giveaways to corporate uh, entities, giveaways to developers, but poor people, working class people, they're the ones who are going to get stuck into these jails and moved out of the city of Atlanta. Yeah, Keisha Lance Bottoms, not one of my favorite rattlers for sure. But what you're naming here, Kamau, I think is important. I think we've been seeing different versions of this across the United States in the time since uh, the George Floyd uprisings, as you were pointing out. I mean, just these uh, fabricated myths about uh, uh, crime waves and about how, you know, creating this image in people's heads that they're going to get robbed or hurt or murdered or something if, if they just walk around the corner and therefore we have 
have to flood the streets with more police to keep people, uh, quote unquote, safe. And, you know, I always ask the questions, if, you know, if the police were doing such a good job in the first place, then, you know, why do we have to continue to, you know, uh, funnel in all this money, all these resources that could be going to so many other things? And I know there's a lot of things in Atlanta that the kind of money that's going both to the police and to this cop city training center and uh, things like that uh, uh, instead. But um, are uh, instead of that, going into the coiffures of these racist, suppressive uh, institutions that are, in fact, violent. And so to me, like when you talk about, you know, tripping people to the ground and arresting them because they refuse to uh, sign a citation, that's a crime to me. And just like you say, these other arrests, basically this criminalization of poverty and all the different ways that that happens. The act of that, to me, is criminal against poor working and oppressed people because that is who precisely uh, uh, suffers the brunt of it. You know what I mean? And so the fact that they uh, would use this to try to, uh, if I'm understanding you, basically wanting to hit fast forward on this whole uh, cop city project, I think is just a reflection, frankly, of a kind of fear on behalf of uh, the ruling class where they feel that they have to um, accelerate and be more aggressive in uh, 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 how they meet out this uh, state violence, you know, out of a kind of almost a paranoia about an uprising that really comes along that will overturn their power. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. And I definitely know what you mean. I think this is an opportunity that's being grasped by uh, the elite in this country, in Atlanta and in other places to reclaim the, the idea that the police are the quote unquote good guys, that locking people up is what keeps folks safe. Uh, and the target of that is going to be poor and working class people, in particular in a place like Atlanta, poor working class black people. Um, and this is also, I think, part of the objective is uh, is around moving these folks out of the city, moving these people out to other areas of the of, of the of the state, or or even outside and outside of the state, because they want to reclaim all of the property in a, in, in a place like Atlanta, in Atlanta proper. And again, this is happening all over the city, where these cities are now being turned back uh, into playgrounds or places where rich corporations, uh, tech companies can bring in, uh, create their business parks in the city with all the amenities. Their workers who are middle-class workers um, come here, they drive up the cost of living, and they push out, whether purposely or not knowing or not, but the situation is that poor people and working-class people get pushed out. Politicians celebrate this as progress and do everything they can to make this happen by, again, setting the police loose on poor or working class people. Uh, this was a situation where you had uh, white folks in Piedmont Park who were there after dark. That police officer, Piedmont Park is, is the central park, let's say, of Atlanta. That, that police officer would have had a totally different attitude, uh, a totally different approach if he would have approached them at all. Again, this is this goes to show that the type of, of, of policing institution that we have in the United States is one of that's based on brutality, harassment, and control. And then when it happens, for the most part, their higher-ups will support them and will not see them as doing anything wrong unless it's the most egregious of acts that is caught on videotape. And even then, they still may try to help get those folks off. Yeah, and Kamal, real quick, if you could remind us just of 
the nature and scope of this uh, a cop city project that uh, the city of Atlanta is trying to construct. We talked about it with you a little while ago, but just as a refresher, I mean, uh, why is it that, you know, the city uh, wants to put all these resources into this uh, project? Well, the city, along with this corporate uh, sponsor, has raised a minimum of $90 million to create basically a police playground, uh, a police training center. It's also going to be a fire department training center, but the main purpose is the police training center, which will encompass well over 100 acres. And to do this, they are tearing down a forest um, in southwest Atlanta, which is within a black community, something that's been promised to be parkland and forest land and hiking land and to be preserved. But the city has again broken that promise and decided that it wants to build what essentially will be the largest training ground in the country for police. A city like Atlanta, which doesn't even have the top within the top 10 of largest police forces, will now have the largest police training center in the country. Um, and we think this is tied to the larger aspect of not only pushing out poor people, poor black folks, poor working class folks, but this is also a response, again, to uh, what happened in terms of the uprisings in 2020 and beyond. Um, so we think that this is being centered as a project uh, which is somehow supposed to uh, uh, give the police, um, throw the police a bone in some ways, uh, but revitalize their reputation to the larger public, make them feel good. The police budget is, is in Atlanta has continually increased whether crime is going up and or crime is going down. And again, we should state that there has never been any study whatsoever, never any study whatsoever that has shown a correlation between having more police and more and, and police on more police on the street and a reduction in what would be considered criminal activity. When there was a historic uh, drop in crime all across the country, none of it, none of the, the, the policing apparatuses in the different cities all had different types of, of policing programs, different sizes of force. There was never any correlation which was ever established that shows that the more police you have, even the more arrested you make, that somehow that has some correlation with a drop in crime. And so what we're having, what we have here is a propaganda game in which and the elected officials are here to um, put forth an idea that it is the police that have something to do with public safety. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it seems to me that if the police want to improve their reputation, they can start brutalizing and killing people. But we're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 2. 
800-525-1320. Myself and Jackie Lukeman continue to be joined by Kamal Franklin. And Kamal, this week we marked the 135th birthday of uh, Marcus Mosiah Garvey, uh, the organizer and leader of the United Negro Improvement Association. And I think it's important to really um, mark Garvey's birth uh, precisely because we are, of course, still in the midst of Black August, which, you know, not only is a time to, you know, deepen our study and appreciation of black resistance, but to uh, uplift political prisoners, which Marcus Garvey was. I mean, he became a political prisoner. He was railroaded, uh, due in no small part to the uh, efforts of a young J. Edgar Hoover and what was then the Bureau of Investigations that later, that later became the Federal Bureau of Investigations. And uh, we're talking about a man who helped lead uh, uh, the largest organization of black people that the world has seen. And, uh, you know, particularly given the material conditions that African people find themselves in all across this earth, Kamau, well, I'm wondering how you see uh, what we could perhaps learn and take away uh, from the example of a Marcus Garvey as we continue to build this movement and to stay in struggle. Yeah, I think I think there's a lot of things to uh, to take from the work of Marcus Garvey and the UNIA, in particular for Black organizers who are looking to create mass-based organizations. The UNIA is a prototype. It's a prototype that's been studied and it's been uh, duplicated by other organizations, including the Nation of Islam, uh, to an extent the Black Panther Party movement. Uh, obviously, Garvey gave us the, the Black uh, Liberation flag. There's been uh, the, the Republic of New Africa, on and on. There's been organizations that since the birth of the UNIA have taken bits and pieces or even within whole cloth of its program, uh, some of its cadences in terms of how it spoke about the issue of white supremacy, um, its ideological background. And again, it doesn't mean that everything that the UNIA or Garvey did was fantastic or worked well. Uh, there's definitely things to have debates and discussions about, uh, particularly around the sort of economic philosophy of Garvey. But um, even with that said, Garvey understood his audience. He understood black people and the, the full ramifications of the needs of black people when it came to organizing. So he built a multi-purpose organization that dealt with everything from social needs to political needs to cultural needs to economic needs that became the basis of black folks who remember at the time when the, when the Garvey movement was built, particularly in the United States, were no more than like 40 or 50 years removed from slavery. And so to have somebody come out and build a formation that gave, uh, again, not only the, the sort of cultural and social aspects of what it meant to be um, empowered or to think about self-determination, but, it, but again, also gave a political direction to what that meant. And it was uh, a speaker who was as dynamic as Garvey, who helped capture a moment and get, again, literally millions of black people, over 700 um, um, uh, uh, units here in the United States alone, a, a newspaper that was read all over the world with a readership well within the millions. Um, this is the type of organization that we should study and then take from it what, what we think are the good things, which shows us how we can build within the larger black community. And, you know, Kamal, I think it's that international piece that I'm always intrigued by the way that Garvey built 
the UNIA so that it had hundreds of chapters worldwide. Now we're talking about a distribution network for the Negro world, the the newspaper that the UNIA published that was distributed around the world. This was long before, you know, telephones, right? So there was no internet, there was no computer, widely disseminated in so many different countries in parts of Africa and the Caribbean. He held elaborate conventions, international conventions, uh, to talk about, to bring folks throughout the diaspora together to talk about issues that connect us all. I mean, how do you think the current moment we're in, when we're talking about the repression of the police and particularly the FBI, since, you know, we're We've got a confused bunch of people who are cheering the FBI on because they raided Trump's house. But this is the same FBI that trumped up charges, pun not intended, uh, against Marcus Garvey for mail fraud to destroy the UNIA and infiltrated the organization. And it ultimately had him deported. I mean, how do you see our kind of lack of connection between the importance of an organization like the UNIA for building that international solidarity in the 1920s and our kind of needing to struggle to rebuild that international solidarity today? And and what do you think our relationship with policing and and law enforcement agencies like the FBI has to do with that disconnect in that relationship? I think it's the the U.S. government institutions through the FBI is the very reason why we don't have a connection to the work of Marcus Garvey like we should, or through the work of the militant movements of the 1960s and 70s like we should. I think, as I've, I've probably stated here in the past, you know, we came out the 60s and 70s, and when we look at that history uh, as a people, we have to remember it was the FBI, again, as a, as a uh, directive of the federal government. We should never confuse the FBI of acting alone or being some uh, some uh, some out of the box uh, institutional organization that wasn't following orders. The FBI had orders about what it should do to stop not only black militants but the white left, white radicals, um, international uh, uh, formations of organizations and groups. The FBI's job, um, along with the CIA, was to stop the formation of radical and, as as it says in some of their documents a black nationalist leader who could unite the movement, right? Um, This is what their job was. And they did their job successfully through what we know today as COINTELPRO. Um, And it was was mentioned the first COINTELPRO operation that you could say wasn't officially COINTELPRO, but it was the start of those type of operations was the one against Marcus Garvey that had him imprisoned and then later deported. So the movement, the black movement, uh, was destroyed by the Federal Bureau of Investigation and what was left was nonprofits and voting rights. That was the avenue in which we were directed to go into and was allowed to open up. And the idea that somehow we were going to integrate into society and we were going to practice a form of black capitalism as our economic road to success. Um, and so these things, the FBI played a huge role, a huge role in not only the actual physical uh, destruction of the organizations, but the propaganda arm that would put stories in the media um, and have things written negatively about black leaders. So the very reason we're here today so confused 
about what the role of the FBI is in our community. Remember, not two weeks before Trump, uh, Trump's uh, uh, residence in, in, in Florida was uh, invaded or, or a search warrant was issued, the organization uh, Uhuru was, was taken down. It wasn't taken down or it wasn't uh, a search warrant was issued and the search warrant wasn't issued in the same way or, or uh, that it was against Trump. Uh, the leader of that organization was handcuffed. They had their phones blocked so that they could not make phone calls. Uh, they used uh, 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 percussion uh, grenades to, uh, to 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 stabilize them. Uh, they made them. They handcuffed them. Made them sit down on the floor um, outside some of their members. And so there was a totally different way in which they approached black militant left uh, leadership than something that they do to recover documents in this particular case against the former president. So we have to look at the, the case. That guy is never going to be our friends. They're never going to be our allies. Um, if they do something that we may happen to think is okay, then, then okay, it's okay. But we have to understand the fundamental role that the FBI plays, which is to keep a stabilized uh, a United States internally, a domestic United States going without disruption or interruption of, of corporate or capitalist institutions. And that's the role of the FBI, is to keep capitalism going, to stop anything that may slow it down, to stop any disturbances or any interruptions in the flow. And that's their, that's their primary role. And so there can never be our friends as organizers who see ourselves countering U.S. capitalism and U.S. imperialism. Yeah, and you know, Kamal, the fact that we have to sit here and say that the FBI aren't our friends is pretty wild, but I think it um, uh, says a lot about the mental terrain. And I always find it helpful to really, you know, interrogate that in terms of where the consciousness is and why people think the way they think. And it seems to me that, you know, for uh, left elements here in the United States who I think are quite aware of a lot of the issues that are facing people, not only in this country, but around the world, a lot of existential issues for humanity. I don't think it's an overstatement to, to say, I don't know. It's like there's this weird uh, uh, desire to look for, you know, friends and people who can join the struggle and things like that. And to a large extent, a lot of elements uh, over here, sort of broadly speaking, I think are um, disorganized and things like that. And, and so that creates a kind of knee jerk uh, uh, emotional type of reaction when we see things like uh, the FBI um, uh, uh, rating Trump and, you know, uh, and then we see this uh, sort of opportunistic response from right wingers. All of a sudden they, they hate the FBI as if they wouldn't use the FBI to crush us if they had the power to 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 do so. And see, that's precisely the danger of that kind of thinking. But I think, again, it shows that even folks with those politics are, are just as susceptible to this propaganda as anyone. And I think it's important that you highlight how the FBI was operating on behalf of the federal government. They were working on behalf of the American capitalist state. And that is precisely why they exist. The same with the CIA, the same with all of these different um, intelligence and other types of institutions uh, here in the U.S. government that although they portray themselves to be these, you know, facilitators of peace, democracy, so on and what have you. In truth, they serve a, a repressive function to try to frankly destroy literally by any means necessary any attempt 
to uh, uh, really change uh, uh, and really address a lot of the consequences of the contradictions of this capitalist system. And the the multi-purpose nature, speaking of Marcus Garvey, the multi-purpose nature of the UNIA that you highlight, Kamal, I think is very important because when we talk about Marcus Garvey, we're talking about someone who deeply understood black people and their strivings and their yearnings at a, at a cellular level, even down to uh, the point of self-esteem and this sense of somebodyness that people uh, uh, need to really be able to uh, fight for themselves. And this is something, this sense of personhood that was uh, robbed uh, of black folks through our experience of slavery and, and subsequent years of systemic dis, uh, discrimination and inequity and things like this. So that's where we get, you know, these uh, uh, sort of, you know, uh, the, the, all these uniforms and things we see with the UNIA, all these different departments, these kinds of uh, extravagant sounding titles the, uh, that people got. You know, I mean, he understood that at every level, uh, the kind of uh, the, the the collective ego, if you will, of black people had to be rehabilitated after centuries of white supremacist uh, uh, abuse. And uh, it shows how important it is as a mass movement to incorporate all these different types of things and that we, 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 we might not be able to bring people in in, in the numbers and the qualities that we want simply by the politics alone. I mean, that has to remain at the core. But what I think it shows us, Kamal, is that when we talk about organizing a mass movement, is that we need to have a kind of holistic view of the human being and, and of the person and understand what it is that people need at different levels and infuse that in our political work, thereby really fleshing out and having a much more uh, robust and rich kind of movement culture that I think will strengthen those bonds to enable us to carry through this struggle. Exactly right. I think, you know, one of the, the, the pitfalls that I think sometimes our good friends who are, are white leftists, um, socialists like I am, uh, but who want to only talk to us about class and not include a race dynamic in it, is that they're, they're misunderstanding the history of not just uh, imperialism or misunderstanding the history of enslavement here in the United States, but the fact that this was a, a process that took place all around the African world. And so the idea of really re either rehabilitating or talking about the ideas of self-determination for people who had that stripped away uh, in such a huge way is something that's paramount, which is why it works uh, even outside of organizing. Like, you know, on the negative for a frame of this, we look at some of this talk conversations around cryptocurrency and how it's being sold to us as black people through the lens of this is economic salvation for black folks or this is for black folks or a way for black folks to uh, to not only participate but seize control over our lives um, through some cryptocurrency thing. It's really the idea that they're trying to sell us of, of sort of a, a collective unity or nationalism or self-determination that Garvey understood even during that time period, but others came to understand later, but used it for their own selfish goods as opposed for the unification and struggle for a larger black community. Jackie Lukman, your thoughts? Yeah, I, I mean, it, it is it is interesting that, 
you know, we are at this moment, I think, that where we're having to, like you said, Sean, um, you know, explain to people that the FBI are not your friends. Explain to people that this government and all of its institutions are not here to help us, even if every once in a while they do something that seems like it's a decent thing to do, but only because it's the logical thing to do. And when it comes to actually meeting the needs of the people, they're also completely never going to do those things. So, you know, I think that we are, while we're we're talking about the legacy of, of Marcus Garvey, we're also talking about the need to not forget, uh, you know, what he built. And because we, I think we have a whole maybe generation or two of people who don't know this history. And obviously I think because that's a function of the system we're in and a function of the lousy education system and the white supremacist nature of the education system in this country. But it also gives us a revolutionary hope. We talk about this all the time, that this kind of thing can be done. We can build an organization, an international solidarity organization that is effective. Once again, we can do it because it was done. We just have to be clear about who our enemies are in this struggle to get to that place. And I think beyond, because I think we need to go farther than what Marcus Garvey did, because I, I believe as a Garvey at myself that he would want us to take his legacy farther than what he did. Yeah, I think there's nothing about any any when we look back at our our past organizations and institutions and heroes and sheroes and our fights for power. There's definitely a legacy that we need to carry forth because I think a lot of folks, you know, they got it right. I think the Black Panther Party got it right. I think there are aspects of the Republic of New Africa that got it right. A militant struggle for blacks of self determination a wider internationalism, a pan-Africanism, I said, I think all the basis of our struggle and has been and needs to be understood. But it doesn't mean we need to repeat the, let's say, the failures or misunderstandings or differences that some of us would have today with how some of that stuff was either implemented or tried or conducted. Um, so it's like, you know, we can keep the basics of the politics and understand that that's not the stuff that we need to lose. Uh, but there are issues, of course, with anybody and anyone uh, who would try to bring us back to uh, some traditional way of living that has some uh, patriarchy and sexism and homophobia mixed in there. I'm not citing that around Garvey particularly, um, but we must understand that we there's things about uh, struggle that have to be updated because as we grow, we hopefully will learn new things. Um, hopefully we will enact new things. But we have to understand that when the, again, when the federal government and the FBI decided to attack black movements, they decided to attack for the most part. And when they decided to attack, I should say, white left movements, for the most part, they attacked the, they attacked the most militant of those movements that were calling for an overthrow of capitalism that was talking about socialism. And the black community, one that, ones that were also talking about socialism and overthrow of capitalism that were hooking up with comrades all around the globe to figure out how to defeat this global system of capitalism. Um, but we're also talking about how black folks and other folks needed to have some self-determination to have control over resources, land, um, and labor that made sense to them to control as being a part of their larger community.
Definitely. We're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here. Kamal Franklin is here. And we have a caller on the line. Alex, tell us what's on your mind. Hey, I'll, uh, hope you can hear me okay. Uh, my phone's kind of messing up. But I wanted to ask you how, uh, I guess, important do you feel like it is to kind of explore the idea of the what Marx called, you know, the petty bourgeois mindset of a lot of Americans in the country. Because we have the elites in their class, the relatively small, but the petty bourgeoisie are pretty large. And it's almost more so like a mindset or approach to how you want to see, you know, life realized for most of the planet? Do you want to preserve capitalism and try your hopes, you know, to become wealthy? Or do you understand that we need a new system, a, a socialist system, a working class mindset? And I'm just wondering how large an issue do you feel that is? Because I feel like it does come into play a lot. Um, the base, you know, of fascist movements being heavy bourgeois people, pro-police, pro-repression, anti-worker. And I'm just kind of curious your thoughts on all that. Thank you. Well, thank you, Alex. Appreciate you calling in. Hope to hear from you again soon. Uh, Kamau, your thoughts? Oh, I think it's a huge issue. Um, I think it's the petty bourgeois which is put into the role of being, you know, what sometimes is, is referred to as sort of the uh, misleadership class. It is the petty bourgeois that usually is directed first and foremost to instruct the masses on how to be calm, cool, and collected, how to be, how to accept their pennies that they should save their pennies and they should work hard to look like them as they, as though petty bourgeois thinks it's working hard to be tomorrow's capitalist. So I think the overwhelming influence that the capitalist ideology puts on a petty bourgeois um, is something that has to be battled, has to be redirected. Um, and it may be, you know, again, it may be folks who are ready to commit class suicide, of course, but for the most part, the issue is that they have this, we have this petty bourgeois which act as the managers of the larger society. Um, and as the managers, they hold others at bay um, and would teach them the lessons of propaganda one-on-one as opposed to the media exposure that gets to them. These are the one-on-one day-to-day interactions with people around what you should, how you should direct your life, what, means, what, what does it mean to be successful, what does it mean to be a failure, uh, and those lessons come directly from those folks who are closest to us a lot of times. Yeah, I, I actually think that, um, you know, the struggles we have with the petty bourgeoisie are the are that is the, the larger struggle for most of us, because I don't know about you all, but I don't I don't know any actual capitalists like I don't know people who are controlling, you know, the means of production. I don't I don't personally know people who are, you know, stealing people's labor. Those people are not in my orbit. I know of them. We know who the Jeff Bezoses and the Elon Musks and the Walton families. Yes, we know who they are, but we 
on a daily basis, I think, interact with people of the petted bourgeois, bourgeois class more than we do anybody else. These are the people in our families, in our neighborhoods, the people we go to church with, the people we go to school with, the people that we work with, who are all striving to be higher up in the rungs of the management class, right? They don't see themselves, they may not even see themselves as, as, as a part of the petit bourgeoisie class. Um, they may not even know what they that 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 is, but they know that they want to be a part of that they want to be what they think capitalists are, right? They they want to be the quote unquote boss. At least they want to be more financially comfortable than they are. And they're willing to accept, um, you know, the rules of this system, uh, which means that, you know, working class and poor people are denigrated and they are exploited and they're kept at the low end of the pay scale so that they can get more. And they, they buy into, Sean, you know, the ideology that comes with that, that the reason working class and poor people are are working class and poor is because they don't work hard enough. You know, they don't have enough ambition. They don't have enough education. And, you know, all of those lies that the petted bourgeoisie are told that sets them apart from the rest of us, but also keeps them very far away from the capitalists who are exploiting them as well. So I, I think our greatest struggle, Sean, really is with the petted bourgeoisie on a daily um, basis, while our ultimate goal, our ultimate uh, um, ideological and material battle is with the capitalist class. But that buffer class, the petted bourgeoisie, those are the folks who we have to deal with every day. Yeah, and we have another caller on the line here. David, tell us what's on your mind. Uh, yeah, so with, well, sort of a little bit with respect to this issue, um, well, I think the majority, the vast majority of the American population, even if they have very low income, are still pro-capitalist in the sense that they believe the capitalism should work, simply that's not working well for them. But let me ask you this, and, and, and whether that's because of propaganda or, or just whatever, that, that's my view of the, the majority of American states. I, I can't see a, a successful socialist revolution any time in the next in future, near future. But well, along the lines of that, and I'm, I'm to the left of the Democratic Party, way to the left, but isn't it, isn't it the case that capitalism has been better for the American people? Like if you go back to the 1950s, 1960s, wasn't there a time when capitalism was a little bit less greedy? And, and, and isn't that potentially a, a, another solution if, if it's forced upon them? That's my comment. Thank you, David. Appreciate you calling in. Hope to hear from you again soon. Uh, Kamal, your thoughts? Well, I, th I mean, uh, you know, unfortunately, I think you're correct on the st stance of I'm not sure, you know, if, we, if uh, we're in any position to say that there's about to be a revolution in the United States, a socialist left revolution uh, in the next five or 10 years or so forth. I definitely think there's about to be a battle of various forces within the United States of what that outcome will be. Uh, is very dangerous. Um, I think that, you know the the, the so-called fascist slash right wing uh, part of the country um, is is ascendant in a lot of ways, um, and I think part of their battle is not around obviously preserving whatever small amount of democracy there is, 
but their battle is about retaining and making sure that they have power. Um, and I think that these folks have been uh, drawn into a certain mindset that they want these, particularly these white working class people and their white elite um, uh, leaders or petty bourgeois leaders in some ways, um, are drawing on the idea that the demographic shifts are somehow meaning that these folks are no longer in the positions that they once were in terms of exercising power and having control over power, and that they will now fight to get to retain and or to get that. And I think they will do that by any means necessary to continue to use that quote, uh, because I think they see some, again, particularly in some southern states and around the country, they see um, some potential shifts, and they will do anything and I repeat, anything to retain their power. Now, when it comes down to whether or not capitalism has served people better in the 50s and 60s, it depends on what people you're talking about, and it depends on whether or not you think the people who think they did benefit need to benefit in that way. So, i.e., in the 50s and 60s, of course, a certain class, particularly in the United States, of white working class people did have a large amount of benefits, but what was the cost of that or who suffered while those benefits were happening? Certainly black folks and Latino folks, but mostly black folks were not benefiting during that time period that some consider sort of the golden day age of capitalism. Uh, that was still the Jim Crow era. That was the segregation era. That was the uh, era of overt oppression of black folks that a lot of these right-wingers will be glad to return to now um, as long as they felt they had more power. Um, internationally, what we had is overt imperialism that was being challenged, or overt imperialism, so the stealing of resources, land, and materials, which provided the basis for folks here to live in a certain way of, of comfortability um, that they would not have experienced otherwise, or uh, a shared way of making sure that people, people, more people were comfortable was not something which the larger capitalist class and electoral class um, wanted to see happen anyway. It was a zero-sum game for them, and they only cared about they themselves and whatever comforts needed to be dished out to the working class people to keep white working class people to keep them in line, they gladly did gave. But when they figured out that they did no longer have to do that, that they could have these same folks live off credit, that they can get their products made cheaply by sending labor overseas, that they can destroy the basis of pensions and health care benefits and the rest of it and, and, and increase their wealth by tremendous amounts. They did that also, and for the most part, they felt at least for another 20 or 30 years, they retained the loyalty of that, of that white working class population. And now today, there's a struggle for that loyalty, which for the most part, again, ends up in a fascist camp. Jackie Lugman. Yeah, I I don't believe, along with Kamau, that, you know, there was this golden age of capitalism that might be better uh, than, you know, a full revolution. I, I mean, I, I, I also agree that, you know, with the caller that, you know, I don't think we'll see a full-blown revolution in this country in 10 years and maybe not in my lifetime. But you know what? I... Gen Z continues to surprise me. So who knows? I I hope that I'm wrong. But because I, I think that we also have to remember that, you know, there has been no revolution that has been uh, embarked upon or won by a plurality of the, the people. Revolutions have always been uh, engaged in and, and advanced and won by a small number of people. And through the act of revolution, which is a process, it's not a one-time thing, more people have been won over through that 
process. So I, I think it is possible that, as we were talking about before, more of the petit bourgeoisie can be uh, uh, won over. But I think that would have to come with some economic pain coming that way. And, and I think that they are being obliged that uh, with the uh, converging crises that are going on right now. But, but th there's no such thing as a golden age of capitalism that we can go back to um, as, as a shortstop for uh, a full revolution, because that is just sustaining the exploitative system and all of the inequalities therein. And, and why would we do that? We want a new system. It is socialism or barbarism. Nothing short of that, because anything short of that is its continued barbarism, Sean. Yeah. And, you know, as it pertains to revolution in the United States, of course, no one knows uh, the day or the hour of a revolutionary crisis in this country. But what I think is an objective fact is that the contradictions of uh, uh, capitalism and even how they're showing up within elements of the ruling class are pointing to, as I think Kamal was saying, some very dangerous implications for uh, poor working and oppressed people who are already suffering and losing so much. I mean, we mentioned on the show uh, just earlier this week about how one in three uh, Gen Z adults, people born between 1996 and 2004, dealt with food insecurity in the first part of this year. And even how that um, element of the population still very much reeling from the uh, 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 early onset of the coronavirus pandemic in a number of ways economically that literally makes it difficult for them to eat. So right down to the most basic things, food, housing, the, the, uh, the climate, clean water, all these sorts of things that are going completely unaddressed by this ruling class uh, will not get better over time. They will, in fact, get worse. And so the question for us as organizers and as movement people, I think, is, how are we operating and organizing in this moment to respond to that? It can't be a situation where we're sitting around waiting for some spontaneous event to act or to begin to uh, uh, try to build uh, these organizations and these movements that we know are needed. We have to be doing that right now. There is so much that can be done in these periods of a relatively low ebb of activity that will prepare us for that revolutionary crisis whenever it may come. Because, you know, I'm sure if you look at a lot of uh, the different revolutions throughout time, I'm certain there were people that were saying, well, you know, I mean, yeah, we should build and do this and organize and things like that. But I don't think uh, this revolution will come anytime soon. And then the thing happens the next day. And so it's one of these things that we, we really can't predict. And I think we should also bear in mind about how quickly a uh, consciousness can change. I mean, we saw that play out in real time uh, uh, during the, the George Floyd uprisings. Now, I'm not trying to imply that I think that there's going to be this revolutionary crisis tomorrow or the next day or what have you. But I'm just a big believer that we should be um, uh, uh, preparing ourselves in such a way, almost as if that is the case, because the more prepared we are, the better suited we will be to deal with those conditions and the contradictions and um, the repression that will undoubtedly come down as a response 
of all of that. And so, you know, as things continue to unfold and we keep an eye on everything that's happening and we see how, you know, the ruling class is, you know, uh, seemingly maneuvering to uh, deepen its repression of the popular classes of this country in uh, a number of ways, I think it's just more evidence of the unsustainability of the capitalist system itself. And that when you have a system that is rooted in endless expansion and exploitation on an earth that is finite, then what we're living through in this moment is just sort of the logical conclusion of that. And so what that means is that we have to work and fight and struggle for a new system that isn't based in exploitation, that isn't based in oppression and death and discrimination and war and genocide and all these sorts of things. We have to bring about a humanity-based system of socialism. We're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. One thing, Kamal Franklin, so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with all new episodes. As always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.